Ever since you can remember, you felt something in your chest telling you to move, to love, to speak, to try. Day after day, you pretend you don't hear it calling, or maybe you dismiss it as silliness or worse. But it's there, ready for you, and it will wait for you as long as you need. My name is Johnny G, and I invite you to join me on a journey of awakening as we dare to embrace our light. This is Refractive. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Refractive Podcast. I'm your host, Johnny G. A friend of mine named Michelle in Washington, D.C. had recommended to me that I go stay in a Buddhist monastery. Now, this was mind-blowing to me because I'm not a Buddhist. I know nothing about Buddhism. Nothing about Buddhism. I had only had a very surface-level exposure to Buddhism and and its teachings. Um, But she had spent a year in Southeast Asia and had stayed in several monasteries for much of that year and had experienced spiritual growth in a way that she thought would benefit me as well. She knew kind of my journey and my strengths and my areas of opportunity in spirituality. And she thought it would be something that's very beneficial for me. And so listen, I'm, again, it's never been on my radar. Buddhism has never been a part of my thought process, but I I certainly was open to it. And because I'm a nomad right now, uh, it's been two years. I haven't really had a, 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 a lease or a place anywhere. Um, Why not, right? If I'm staying over here or staying over there, I can just as easily go spend a few weeks in this monastery. So I I did it. And I got to tell you, I learned a lot. I learned a lot about, of course, the practice of Buddhism itself, but I learned some spiritual truths and I gained some wisdom from it. And I thought it would really be an interesting episode. So today I'd like to share that with you. I want to first talk a little bit about Buddhism and uh, the two varieties of Buddhism. And then I'll talk a little bit about the monastery I stayed in, what type of um, Buddhist tradition it follows. And then I'll go into my takeaways and things that I think might be helpful to you because they were helpful to me. So to start off with, I first want to talk about how there are basically two different sects of Buddhism. Now, some people will say that there are three sects, and that's fine. Um, You know, some other people say that two of those three sects can be um, combined into one. So for simplicity, I'm going to say there are two. And the first is Theravada. Theravada is the older sect of Buddhism. And it's the generally more conservative sect of Buddhism. And Theravada Buddhists strive to become arhats. And even by saying this, let me just say that (laughs) there's a lot of Buddhists who would say, "Mm, we don't strive to become anything. We already are everything. And so I, I, I 
It's just for simplicity and practicality that I'm using these terms. So if you are a Buddhist expert, please don't come at me, right? Uh, um, I understand that I, I might be oversimplifying some things, um, but it's for the sake of time. And please feel free to research all of this. I found an amazing website from the BBC that uh, explains a, a, a high level overview of Buddhism and its, its variations and its core beliefs. And so I'm going to put that website in the show notes because even though I had already gone through the the monastery in putting this episode together, it was a helpful resource for me. Okay. So the first sect we're talking about is the older, more conservative sect called Theravada, T-H-E-R-A-V-A-D-A. Theravada Buddhists strive to be arhats. And and that word is A-R-H-A-T. And an arhat is a perfected being that has gained true insight to the nature of reality, and they have followed the noble eightfold path and have thus extinguished the three fires of greed, hatred, and ignorance. They have achieved enlightenment through this, and that has freed them from this ongoing cycle of life, death, and rebirth which the Buddhists call samsara. So uh, having achieved enlightenment, they will no longer be reborn. That is the general path for a Theravada Buddhist. I referenced the noble eightfold path, and I'll just run through it really quickly. This is fascinating stuff. Um, It's rich spiritual material. It jives perfectly with Christianity. It jives with with mystical Judaism, uh, this it's just a really valuable set of information that can only enrich your spiritual journey if you aren't already familiar with it. So the, 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 the eight parts of the Noble Eightfold Path are right action, right speech, right livelihood, right mindfulness, right effort, right concentration, right view, which you might think of as understanding, and right intention. And so by mastering the Noble Eightfold Path, these Theravada Buddhists achieve the status of arhat and therefore are freed from the cycle of samsara, which is life, death, and rebirth. So let's move to the other sect of Buddhism. This is the slightly newer sect. It's slightly less conservative, and it's called Mahayana. Mahayana Buddhists aim to become bodhisattvas. And a bodhisattva, I'm not going to spell it for you. Um, (laughs) You can find it on the interwebs. Um, But rather than an arhat, they strive to become bodhisattva. A bodhisattva is someone who is also on the path to enlightenment, but who believes that they will achieve enlightenment by helping others achieve enlightenment. So they stay in the cycle of samsara. They, They choose to stay in the cycle of life, death, and rebirth until others have achieved their enlightenment, and then the bodhisattva is free to achieve enlightenment. 
okay? And therefore stop the cycle of life, death, and rebirth. And so, um, yeah, so that kind of is a little bit of an overview of the two. And here's kind of how I see the differences, okay? Um, whereas Theravada Buddhists strive to become arhats and gain freedom from the cycle of samsara, Mahayana Buddhists, for purposes of compassion, choose to stay in the cycle of samsara and, the, and then achieve enlightenment afterwards. Both sides of Buddhism are serving the whole because as one of us becomes enlightened, all of us move closer to enlightenment. We affect the whole world. So whether you are focusing on your own enlightenment through relative disconnect from the world and its distractions, its sensory distractions, like a Theravada Buddhist, or whether you go out into the world and engage in the world, albeit surrounded by these sensory distractions that can delay the pursuit of enlightenment, they're doing it from a sense of compassion to help others see the way and therefore um, help us all eventually get there. So, okay, that's a lot. It's heavy. Um, I talked about a lot of complications. Um, it's a fairly complicated topic and I have grossly oversimplified it. And so um, I, I wanna acknowledge that, but I just want you to have some basic understanding. So the monastery that I went to, it is in Temple, New Hampshire. It is about 45 minutes away, maybe, maybe an hour from the Manchester Regional Airport in New Hampshire, maybe about 90 minutes away from Boston. And this place is a part of Theravada Buddhism. So it's part of that older, slightly more conservative, more isolated part of Buddhism rather than Mahayana, which tends to operate in the middle of cities and is more a part of, um, more a part of the world and less removed from the world. And so it was a really stunningly beautiful place Anybody can request to stay there. It doesn't cost anything. Um, if you are interested in that, I'll put a website to the URL to the Temple Forest Monastery where I stayed. I'll put it in the show notes. Um, you can do research, decide if it's right for you. You can stay for an afternoon. You can stay for three days. You can stay for a week, whatever you like. Um, as long as you are a serious spiritual seeker and they sense no concern, uh, they will welcome you to stay at, um, at the monastery. So I went there to this, uh, this monastery. It's part of the Thai forest tradition. Okay. So it's from Thailand and that's where this particular, um, let's say subset of Buddhism originated and it was brought to the West in the 90s. And uh, so there are a handful of Thai forest monasteries in the US right now. And the one I stayed at, as I said, is in Temple, New Hampshire. It's called Temple Forest Monastery. And um, 
it was a really incredible experience. There is such an opportunity for um, connection, for spiritual refinement, um, for self-exploration, for connection with the creator. All of this was really brought front and center. So in order to create this kind of experience for people, not only for the lay people like me who visited, but for the monks who live there and also for the lay, um, let's say the lay members of the Buddhist faith who stay there, there are eight precepts that they ask all visitors to adhere to. and. These eight precepts go slightly beyond what a normal Buddhist practitioner in everyday life would be expected to adhere to. Because we're in a monastic setting, there are eight rather than five. And so the eight precepts that we all make agreements to adhere to before we arrive is that we abstain from taking life of any kind. All right, so there are ticks out there. That means we take great care to remove the ticks without killing them. Um, we don't use insecticides. We don't use anything like that, okay? We abstain from taking what is not given. And this is more complex than it seems on the surface. You might think it means do not steal. It does mean that, but there's more to that. And I want to talk about this topic a little bit later because it was important for my own growth when I was there. Three, abstaining from sexual activities of any kind whatsoever. Four, abstaining from false speech in any form. Five, abstaining from intoxicants, which of course means alcohol and drugs, but it also means any behavior that we use to numb ourselves. So mindless television or scrolling or... Um, daydreaming, anything that pulls us out intentionally of the present moment is considered an intoxicant. Um, six, abstinence from taking food at the wrong time. There are very specific guidelines for when we can eat. Seven, abstinence from entertainment of all kinds and abstinence from adornment. So no singing, no television, no radio, um, no makeup, no fashion, right? No jewelry, things like that. And then eight, abstinence from indulgence in sleep. So it, it, it this is viewed very differently by different Buddhists around the world. Um, uh, but the way it was interpreted at this monastery is um, your bed should be simple. And you should not sleep more than is necessary for your body to function in a healthy way, okay? So no indulgence in sleep, no luxurious bedding, um, and no um, loafing about in the bed all day. So these were the eight precepts that we all committed to adhere to when we were there. And I got to tell you, when you have a group of people and and 
in the monastery, people are coming and going at all different times. I was there for two weeks. Some people were there for three days. And so every day, some people would arrive. Some people would leave. Sometimes we had three visitors. Sometimes we had eight or nine visitors. Sometimes every bed was, was filled. Um, uh, we all did have our own private beds, although it was a dorm where we shared bathrooms. Um, uh, uh, so we had privacy while sleeping, um, but we did share other public places. But adhering to these precepts strips us away from all the things in life that diminish mindfulness. And after all, one of the main focuses of Buddhism is to, to find the present moment and live in the present moment as frequently as, as we're able. And so um, cell phones were not allowed. We were asked to turn the cell phone off uh, when we arrived. Um, and of course, like I said, entertainment, music, nothing like that was allowed there. So now I've kind of brought you up to speed to where I was staying, what it was like, the rules I had to follow, what were the Buddhist precepts. I mean, there was a definite um, rhythm to every day, and it was not optional. And this was another important part of the experience of staying there. So every morning, we had group meditation at 5 a.m., and it lasted one hour. It was silent meditation together. Um, on most days, the monks were with us. On some days, the monks meditated on their own, and it was just the lay people who were there meditating. Then we had chores and work and breakfast that we did in the morning. And so as a part of staying there, it doesn't cost anything, but everyone contributes um, to the upkeep of the place, whether it's vacuuming or raking leaves or whether it's you know cleaning the dorm that you're in. Everybody does a little bit of work for a couple of hours in the morning. Uh, then there's lunch, which is the last meal of the day. We don't eat past noon. We start eating at 11 and we finish by noon. And that's the last meal of the day, which I thought was going to be a big deal for me. If you listen to the show, you know that I have a history of compulsive eating, uh, but it really was not, it was not even challenging in the least. Um, the, 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 the food was hearty. It was satisfying. And then um, uh, I'll tell you a little bit about there was a small snack time that, that happened later in the day. Then there was personal time after lunch, which lasted five hours. And that was time to focus on your practice, whatever it means for to focus on your practice. So for me, uh, because I'm not a Buddhist, um, uh, I did a lot of spiritual reading. I did a lot of journaling. I did a lot of walking out in the forest. Um, I did meditating and walking meditations. Um, that's how I spent my free time every day. And uh, while other people, they stretched how long they could meditate for. Some people said, oh, I'm going to go meditate for three hours straight and things like that. So not everybody does that, but it just depends on what your practice involves and what you're doing. So we have that time every day to do that. And then at five o'clock, the the, the, the tradition allows for what are called tonics and tonics are uh, 
very specific categories of food and drink that we're allowed to have if our um, lower food intake is affecting our body in a difficult way. And so they offer cheese and little squares of chocolate and you can have hot tea. And this is what we're able to have um, at five o'clock. And really, if you were to go and get, you know, two or three ounces of cheese and a couple of squares of chocolate and a hot tea, you were good. Like um, I wasn't, I, I was never hungry. Um, and that was fascinating to me that my body adjusted that quickly to that rhythm of eating. Um, after that, we had another hour of group meditation every day. That was at seven o'clock. So we had 5 a.m. For, for an hour and then 7 p.m. for in-person group meditation. And most days the monks were there. Some days it was just the lay people. And then after that, we would get ready for bed because we're waking up at 4.15, 4.30 every morning. So that was the daily rhythm. There's really no change to it. it. It's the exact same every day. And that structure also had a profound impact on me. So thank you for bearing with me. I recognize that up till now, this episode probably has not been that interesting. I've unloaded a lot of technical information, um, but I needed to give you all of that insight so I can explain why this experience is so valuable and why it's so powerful. So the first thing that I really, the lesson that I'm walking away with from this was, it was about not taking what isn't offered. This precept, not taking what is not offered. And I would tell you that I am a really honest person and I don't steal. That is something that, um, you know, I did do some stealing early in my life. Um, some minor things, some shoplifting, um, some things like that. And um, it's really, it really bothered me as I, as I grew older. And so I'm, I would tell you that I'm really careful about not stealing um, because I don't feel great about things I did in my, in my early twenties. That said, Making a commitment to take nothing that is not directly offered to me was more difficult than I realized. And so I'll give you an example. There was a pack of bottled waters in the monastery. And, you know, no one offered that water. It sat there looking at me day after day. And I was like, man, it would be nice to have a bottle of water instead of having to go to the kitchen and drink a glass of water. And then you have to wash the glass. Like, you know, it would be nice to have a bottle of water. And on day two, I guess it was, I took a bottle of water and I drank it. And I'm passing my room every day. And there are the eight precepts on the wall. It's saying, you know, we abstain from taking what is not offered. And I was like, you know what? I'm not saying I went and stole water, but I am saying I took water that was not offered to me. Maybe that water was for a different purpose. I don't know. And so I actually asked for an appointment to sit with one of the monks 
And I said, Hey, I want to talk to you about this. I'm not trying to be, I'm not trying to beat myself up. I'm not trying to say naughty boy, but I'm saying I recognized that I took something as small as a bottle of water that was not offered to me. And I recognize that I knew I shouldn't have done it. Since I first saw that pack of water, I was like, oh, but no one has offered that to me. I can't take it. That's not the rule of this place. And I felt this seed of defiance grow inside of me until I finally ripped open the package and took a bottle of water and drank it. And I said, and so I'm not trying to be dramatic, but I want to make this right. I want to acknowledge that I took a belonging of the monastery that wasn't offered to me, not like the other beverages that are put out for me, not like the food that is, that is generously placed for me, not like the bed that was prepared for me. Like those things were offered. This was not. And, uh, and I want to acknowledge that. And so it was a valuable learning for me to say, you know, where else in my life do I take liberties? You know, just the other day, just the other day, I ran out of mayonnaise here, okay, where I'm staying. And I was in um, a, a quick service place and they had packets of mayonnaise. And I was like, oh, and I took like four or five packets of mayonnaise and put it in my pocket and I brought it home. Now, I mean, did I steal mayonnaise? <sighs> Maybe. Yeah, I mean, maybe, I guess I did, right? I didn't pay for it. I, I, you know, it was just left out there for people to use, but I took it for purposes other than eating with a product that I bought at that restaurant. So, you know, I didn't really have a right to that mayonnaise. I know that the spirit of why that mayonnaise was put there is different than the spirit in which I took the mayonnaise. And so again, I'm not talking about beating myself up. I'm talking about advanced level spirituality, advanced level self-awareness. What makes me tick? What makes me do the things I do? And can I grow awareness around the things that I do so that my behaviors are more consistently aligned with my values? Because I would tell you my values say I don't steal. Yet, I do have a pattern, the mayonnaise is just one, of taking liberties to make myself more comfortable getting away with things I think I can get away with. And so the first step to healing that wound inside of me, the wound inside of me that says, it's okay, just go ahead and grab it. I mean, nobody cares. If you went and asked a manager, they would say, sure, take some, right? But the fact that I'm doing it without asking, without outside of the intention for which it was provided means that I'm getting away with something. And could I choose a different way to solve the issue? The issue of, I'd like to have a bottle of water. Could I just go ask for one? Or I'm out of mayonnaise. Could I just go ask the cashier for a couple of packets of mayonnaise, right? But there's this quiet satisfaction 
involved in just kind of making it happen. And so now I have awareness around that and, and, and I'm not perfect, but I can see where I have this opportunity to heal. And it's something I wasn't aware of. And I, I just thought it was valuable for there. Another really important lesson that was brought front and center to me at the monastery was about first impressions. You know, I don't know what I expected from the monks. I, you know, every time I see the Dalai Lama, the Dalai Lama always seems to be laughing. And I expected the monks to be warm, smiling, laughing, chatty people. And they would walk in to the sala where we had our meditation and they all looked very somber, which is, I think, the perfect word. And there was no smiling. There was none of that feeling of warmth in their faces that I had expected to see. And I found it very off-putting for my first several days. I found it disappointing. But over the course of these two weeks, I had one-on-one -on -one time with monks several times. Either my job for the, for the work period was to go do something that was specifically helping one monk in his duties. Or sometimes I drove people into town in order to run errands. The monks can't touch money. They can't make purchases. So, uh, you know, I had to drive a monk, for example, to the eye doctor to get a new pair of eyeglasses, but the monk can't pay for anything. So I had to use a um, monastery credit card to pay for the monk services. So, you know, as I'm doing these acts of service, I'm talking with the monks and getting to know them. And I have to tell you, every single monk that I talked to just poured out warmth and kindness. And so when I saw these bald-headed, because they shave their head, right? Bald-headed, very somber men file into the room looking like a row of Mr. Burns from The Simpsons. I'm like, oh, well, this, that doesn't look like what I want to emulate at all. But what I learned by the end of the two weeks was they're not like Mr. Burns from The Simpsons. They're peaceful. They're peaceful. They're focused on the inside. They're focused on unity with the creator. And that is a powerful and sometimes somber, sometimes, well, let's say it's an experience that, that demands respect. And I realized that what I saw as coldness was really peacefulness. And so it's a valuable lesson for me as I look at people that might support a political stance that I disagree with. Or when I look even at something as severe as 
the Russian government right now. And I can say, what don't I really understand? Because I guarantee there's a lot I don't understand. And it doesn't mean I have to sacrifice my autonomy and my ability to process thoughts and feelings and even judgments. But it means that no matter how much research I do, I'm never ever playing with a real full deck. I'm always passing any situation that I make judgments on through my own distorted lens of understanding and perspective. And that helps me to maybe not jump on the zeitgeist bandwagon of bashing a perspective that's different from mine. You know, another really impactful lesson that I had there, I met this guy, he is an Anagarika, and an Anagarika is a lay adherent to Buddhism that is, uh, let's say, studying to become a monk. So it's like a pre-monk, and, uh, and um, hashtag pre-monk. And so I met this Anagarika and I won't use his name, but he was, uh, he was just a fabulous individual. I just really, um, I feel so rich for having spent time with him. And he talked about how years, years ago, a few years ago, he was very close to being ready to take his ordination, right? There's a minimum number of years that you have to serve as an Anagarika for this tradition before you can actually be ordained as a monk in this tradition. And he was close to it. And then the woman who was his wife reached out to him and said, listen, I don't know how to tell you this, but I'm on the verge of declaring bankruptcy and I don't know what to do. So this guy had like entered the monastery almost three years before then, and uh, was very close, as I said, to being ordained. And he decided to leave the monastery, to leave behind his progress to becoming a monk. And he returned to his old career got a job, and he worked for like five years and um, contributed to, the, to this woman's finances, this person who had been his wife in his previous life. And he supported and helped her to avoid bankruptcy, to avoid losing the house, um, Oh, to having to sell the house. You don't lose the house in bankruptcy, but from having to sell the house to make ends meet and, um, and walked away from his life as a monk because of it. And then once things had stabilized, he came back and started all over again from day one. And I found that to be extraordinary. You know, I have an episode on the Sermon on the Mount, and I feel like that behavior calls to mind what Jesus was talking about. Don't worry about tomorrow. 
Like do what's in front of you. You want to be of service? You want to grow your soul? Um, well, answer the call that, that, that presents itself, you know, because to not answer the call of service that presents itself and instead stick to an identity that you've already decided is the right one, that's a form of ego. And I was so touched and inspired by this person to have that kind of perspective to say, yeah, I was close to achieving that milestone of becoming a monk, but um, I stepped out of it, took care of what I felt I needed to take care of. And I came back and I started over and it's fine. And still today, he has not yet become a monk because he has more work to do on it. Um, but if you talk to him, he's the first person to tell you that it's perfect. Everything is perfect. It all happened perfectly and he wouldn't have it any other way. And, you know, that's an ideal that I like to think I'd adhere to, but I don't know if you are asking me to delay three years of my personal work in which I've walked away from my life to build this new path. And if you're asking me to walk away from it, to help you avoid bankruptcy, even if you're the mother of my kids or whatever, I, I can't say that I'm spiritually advanced enough right now to, to promise you right now that I would be willing to do it. Maybe, maybe not. So I just want to tip my hat to you out there. I know you're not listening to my podcast guy because you, you don't, you don't listen to entertainment. So, um, uh, but I want to tip my hat to that Anagarica out there and send some love his way and uh, thank him for that inspiring story. Um, and the lesson I took from that is God's time is what matters, not my time. Things happen in God's time. Another thing that I learned that I thought was pretty, pretty valuable was that in at least in this tradition of Buddhism, and again, I'm so surface level on Buddhism that I, I can't talk for anything other than what I saw and what was explained to me and what I've researched. But monks come and go, and agarikas, those lay pre-monks, come and go. They robe and disrobe. I mean, it's not that easy, right? Like in order to, to ordain, as I said, there's there's quite a process to go through, but they come and go as they feel appropriate. And there's no shame and no resentment and no ill will whatsoever. So the day an Anagarika goes to the abbot of the monastery and says, abbot, I need to leave. There is no, there's no shame, guilt, ill will. It's just, have you thought this through? Do you, are you clear on this? And, and then they give their blessing. And if a monk, even a monk who's had his robes for decades says, today's the day that I am ready to leave and go back and join the quote, real world, uh, the abbot understands and there is no shame. There's no guilt. And I thought that was beautiful because when I think of a monastic life, and maybe it's because I'm coming from my, the tradition of my childhood, which is Catholicism, I think about lifelong commitment. And 
you know, in the Sermon on the Mount, again, Jesus says, do not promise anything. Well, what does that mean for all of these vows and promises we make in the world? Uh, you know, I don't know. That's not the topic of this episode. But the fact is that all we can do is follow the inner wisdom that comes from a place of love in our life rather than the inner wisdom that comes from a place of fear. And if one day that inner wisdom that comes from a place of love says you need to leave, then you're expected to leave. And I thought it was beautiful and reinforcing and comforting that even in a monastic life, that that is fully accepted. The last thing I'll say about my experience here and the lesson that I can walk away with from this is that things work out. Things work out. Things don't always happen the way I imagine them to happen. And I look and I've had a lot of pain in my life. Okay. I've had experiences that I wish I've had experiences that have maimed my psychology and, um, and I recognize that everything is perfect but it doesn't mean I enjoyed going through some of the painful experiences I've had. But even with all of that drama and pain in my life, never has there been a day, never once, where every need wasn't met. And not just that every need wasn't met. Never was there a day in my life where I didn't have extra extra of everything, way more than I needed. Again, just like the Sermon on the Mount says, listen, I'm like the only non-Christian evangelist for Jesus. I'm telling you, like I, uh, I, I'm on fire for the Sermon on the Mount. But the thing is that what I learned from this monastery is that Everything just works out. People show up and they support the monastery. The monks never touch money. They don't make purchases. And all of their needs are met every single day. If they need a saw to cut wood or an axe, or if they need a leaf blower, they, they do without until someone says, hey, what do you guys need? Is there anything that you need that I can get for you? And, and this is how they get 100% of their belongings. That's how they got all of their cars. That's how they've got, that's how they get their food every single day. It's brought to them by people in the community. And, uh, and everything works out. And if there's anything that I need to remember in life, it's that even on my darkest day, everything works out. Even the day I die, even if my death is tragic and painful, it, it, it's working out. It's working out. What role might my death be playing for my family? What catalyst for healing 
might that be doing? How might I, how might I be bringing other people together? You know, what catalyst am I providing for the people who are taking care of me in that hospital bed? Right? What catalyst am I providing for the person who hits me with his car and then has to deal with the aftermath? What type of healing might that person be having a chance to experience because he took my life? For the person who mugs me and shoots me and kills me in the alley and then has to deal with the emotional and psychological pain of that, you know, maybe that person desperately needed a chance to heal some unfinished business. And my death was the catalyst that allowed him to experience that and therefore heal that splintered soul. And so before I say I shouldn't have to deal with obesity and and compulsive eating, before I say I shouldn't have to be an alcoholic, before I say I shouldn't have had to be a gay kid in the South, before I say life shouldn't be this way, before I say that you know, Russia, Russia shouldn't be invading Ukraine. Maybe I should take a step back and say, I don't know. All I know is that I can wake up and do the best I can. And that everything always works out. Thank you so much for listening today. I hope you enjoyed hearing about this experience. I'm going to put all those links into the show notes. If you're interested in visiting a Buddhist monastery, I highly recommend it. Uh, You don't have to stay for two weeks, do what's right for you, um, but you will walk away a different person uh, for that experience. All right, everybody, have a great day and aim your light. You have been listening to Refractive Podcast, and this is Johnny G. If you've enjoyed today's episode, do me a favor. Give it a share on social media, or if you're in the podcast app, give it a rating. If you're on YouTube, click like. It really does make a difference in the search results. I am a speaker, coach, and facilitator based in Washington, D.C., but I work in person and remotely with people who are ready to step with clarity into their most authentic life. If I can be of service, reach out to me, Johnny, J-O-H-N-N-Y, at refractivecoaching.com. Have an amazing day. Be good to each other. And always remember, aim your light.